From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Kulas. This is 7am. As Xi Jinping increases his power and ambition, there is tension over the influence China has in Australia. Progressive critics find themselves aligned with right-wing voices. Mike Seckham on how he assessed the threat posed to our democracy by the Chinese Communist Party. Well, it's all about China once again in Australian politics. Are we afraid to even talk about this? Yeah, it does seem that way. Growing unrest in Hong Kong has rippled to Australia and reveals a deep division in the Chinese community. Hundreds of people have marched through the heart of Sydney CBD, bringing traffic to a standstill. Before this whole China-Australia tension uh, took place, Chinese communities practice uh, this kind of flexible uh, citizenship quite well and quite successfully. But now, on a daily basis, the allegiance has been called into question. Mike, you spoke last week with Clive Hamilton. What did he tell you? I sought Clive Hamilton out because of a book he wrote last year called Silent Invasion, China's Influence in Australia. This was a very controversial book at the time in that it went in great detail into alleged Chinese manipulation of Australian institutions and its apparently malign influence in this country. It was so controversial, in fact, that he was having trouble getting it published. The book was about to be sent uh, to page-proof stage and suddenly they said, we're afraid that uh, we might experience uh, retaliation from uh, Beijing and so we're going to drop the book. And at one point, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, which, of course, Andrew Hastie chairs, was considering publishing it. Mike Seckham is the Saturday paper's national correspondent. In the research for this book, Hamilton spoke to John Garno who's a former China correspondent who then went on to work for Malcolm Turnbull and at Turnbull's behest compiled, along with ASIO, a classified report into exactly this issue, the extent of Chinese influence in Australia. He retailed to me that Gano was one of the first people he spoke to and at the end of their meeting, Gano said to him, and I'm quoting now, you know, it's important that you are writing this book, Clive. Hamilton asked why and Gano replied, because you are from the left. Hamilton told me that he only understood what the import of this comment was after the book was published. And what did Garno mean? Well, what Garno meant was that the resistance to stronger action on China stems in large part from certain elements of the left. There's a section of the left that has a sort of reflexive anti-Americanism, which looks upon anything that is a counterweight to American influence in the world as essentially a good thing. That's one strand of it. The other strand Hamilton calls the multicultural warriors, who are inclined to look upon criticism of the Chinese government as akin to xenophobia or even racism. So it was clearly significant that someone from the left, with Clive's pedigree on the left, was uh, writing this book. I mean, he founded the Australia Institute. He once ran as a Greens candidate. His previous writings have been largely on subjects like threats to the environment, debunking climate change. He wrote one book that attacked the Howard government over its undermining of democratic institutions and civil society in Australia. So he would have expected that he would have been protected to some extent from the left, but he wasn't. 
But even more surprising was the fact that he suddenly found himself with a whole bunch of new friends, many of them people with extreme right-wing views, strange bedfellows indeed. He said to me that he thought he would never appear on The Andrew Bolt Show on, on uh, Sky, for example, but he did so a couple of times. Clive, great to see you again. Now, Clive, uh, every country, of course, tries to spread its influence. What's so different about China doing it? I mean, we see a whole range of what might be called agents of influence operating on behalf of Beijing in all of Australia's institutions, in our parliaments, uh, in our media, in our universities. It's not arm twisting or buying people off. That's kind of old hat. It's subtly shifting people's views. And of course... Mike, why is it important that Hamilton finds himself agreeing with people whose views he usually clashes with and vice versa? Like, did he think, I've hit on something as a result of this kind of explosion of views that he wouldn't expect. Well, the issue goes more broadly to a conversation that Australia has not really been having, at least publicly. Hamilton's entry into the debate um, really scrambled the ideological picture in Australia, in that left believed one thing and right believed the other. And it precipitated something of a breakout, which I think we've seen more recently in Australian politics, where we've seen people on different parts of all the major parties, Labor, Liberal and Greens, crossing their usual ideological boundaries to either support or oppose stronger action on China. And Clive Hamilton's book, and Clive Hamilton himself, was sort of precursors to that. It tends to be the case that politicians rely on this sort of stale formulation that we can maintain our relationship with our strongest ally, the United States, and at the same time maintain our trade relationship with our biggest trading partner, China, and that that can be managed quite easily. And to the extent that Chinese meddling in Australian affairs and affairs more generally is spoken of, it's spoken of in very generic terms. We talk about foreign influence, we talk about authoritarian regimes, but very seldom do politicians actually attach the name China to it. I mean, China's sort of the Voldemort of foreign policy issues in that you can talk about the threat it poses, but you cannot mention it by name. And at the same time, this has to be discussed in terms of China's outlook and the changing power dynamic within China under Xi Jinping. Yeah, well, well, that's right. I mean, for a long time, we've had this fairly comfortable assumption that economic engagement would inevitably lead China to hold values more closely aligned with our own. But since President Xi's ascension a couple of years ago, it's become quite clear that that isn't the case. And China has become much more authoritarian. I mean, we've seen the persecution of the Uyghurs. We're seeing currently what's happening in Hong Kong and the expansion in the South China Sea and so on and so forth. In fact, it was the same week that Hamilton's book came out that the Chinese Communist Party abolished term limits for the president, effectively meaning that the Xi could be there for life. And work hard to help build a great modern socialist country that is prosperous, strong, democratic, culturally advanced, harmonious and beautiful. Xi Jinping. Xi's an interesting character. He's a, he's a very close student of Mao Zedong. He's way more ideological than his predecessors. And as various China experts have told me, his belief is that the Soviet Union failed because it wasn't ideological enough. This has led some in government to suggest that Xi's goal is nothing less than the destruction of Western capitalism. That may be slightly overstating it, but there's definitely been a big shift here. I talked to Richard McGregor, who's an old China hand with the Lowy Institute about this, who made the point that not only has Xi been more willing to take a, a stronger position, but is much more able. 
As he said, China is richer than it's been for 150 years. It's much more powerful diplomatically. It has greater military capability than it ever did before, which means that China can now do a lot of things that they previously dared not, simply because they lacked the capability to do it. We'll be right back. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday paper. No hot takes. Mike, we're talking about how we assess China's influence in Australia and how it might be exercised potentially within Australia. When you say that, what is it that you're talking about specifically? Well, we're talking about a number of things. I mean, this this is a very multifaceted influence peddling issue. I, I spoke to Alex Josky, who's an analyst with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and he said one of the things that has been significantly overlooked is the effect of Chinese language media in this country. He says there's a disturbing number, that was his words, of groups seeking to represent the Chinese community that have either been influenced by or have actually been established to some degree by the CCP. And what's his concern when he talks about Chinese-owned media operating in Australia? Well, it's a vector for Chinese propaganda into this country and it influences the attitudes of the very large expatriate community here. Back in February, uh, Australia cancelled the residency of Wang Jingmo and effectively kicked him out of the country, said he couldn't become a citizen, on the basis of character grounds. He had been a very large donor to both sides of politics. The most obvious victim of association with him was Sam Dastiari. But the Australian government, on the advice of its security agencies, said that he should not be here. And the reaction in the Chinese language media to that was quite extraordinary. About 120 Chinese community groups signed a letter protesting this decision and it was run very prominently in a number of Chinese media. In a, in a couple of them, it was on the front page. It was a pretty big deal. Now, that's not saying that that is necessarily directly because all of the people who were signatories were agents of Chinese influence, but it does indicate that they were disturbed by the actions the Australian government was taking to limit Chinese influence. And the other one, of course, is the one that we're seeing at the moment, which is demonstrations in support of Hong Kong here, where it's pretty clear that a lot of the propaganda that's coming out of Beijing is being parroted by people here. In Australia, when we catch people with bombs in the garages and homes, what do we call them? Terrorists. Correct. We saw a citizen panellist on Q&A suggesting that the pro democracy demonstrators should be considered terrorists. In Hong Kong, when you catch them with bombs and bomb-making material, what do we call them? Pro-democracy protesters. 
and suggesting also that this dissent in Hong Kong was being fomented by Western intelligence agencies. Well, those are exactly the lines that are coming into the country via Chinese propaganda. Mike, the other thing we hear a lot about, especially recently, is China's influence on Australian university campuses. Yes, we do. Uh, there's been quite a bit of media recently about the influence of um, the Confucius Institute, which is connected to you know official Chinese communist entities. But people I spoke to suggested that this was actually a bit overblown. I, I mean, the Confucius Institutes essentially are, are language schools. Anyone can go there. They do not influence the course content of, of universities in Australia. But there's also been actual physical confrontations and protests. Right. Well, in response to the protests in Hong Kong, there are a number of student organisations in Australia have made public their support, quite often by setting up what they call Lenin boards, where messages of support are written up. In response to this, counter-protesters have taken to tearing these down, and this has led to a number of standoffs. Most notably in Brisbane, it, it led to violence on the University of Queensland campus, where pro-Chinese and pro-Hong Kong factions got physically involved. Calm down! Calm down! Communist Party sucks! Subsequent to that, it's worth noting also that the Chinese Consul General in Queensland lauded the actions of the pro-Chinese students for their patriotism. This is not either unique to Australia. Uh, writing in the New York Times just this week, Louisa Lim, Melbourne academic here, said that the battle over Hong Kong is in effect being exported and pitting overseas Chinese communities against each other on campuses from Auckland to Vancouver to Hobart. And I think Louisa Lim said in that piece, this is a battle over narrative control by Beijing and it extends far beyond the, the borders of China itself. Yes, yes, exactly. They are trying to portray pro-democracy students as in fact being terrorists and being ill-motivated. The more concerning thing is more covert involvement in Australian politics. I was told that, you know, there have been a couple of major hacks on the Australian National University and a couple on the parliament itself. And while no one has directly said China is behind it, the suggestion very strongly is that China is behind it. Mike, this is a, it's a worrying picture in, in one view, but are there other voices urging us to sort of be less alarmed? Well, one person I spoke to was David Brophy, who's a lecturer in modern Chinese history at Sydney University. Brophy sees the risks here of this debate sliding into areas of McCarthyism and racism. He particularly worries about a tendency to link all these disparate issues into a sort of common narrative. And he takes the view that if there's a sense that there are hundreds of thousands of Chinese students, you know, in this country who are part of some grand conspiracy to deprive us of our liberties and and or our democracy, well, that could turn into something quite nasty. And he has a point there. It is rather less monolithic than it is often seen to be. Mm. And Mike, after your reporting, did you form a view about whether we're unduly alarmed about Chinese influence or not? I don't actually think we're unduly alarmed. I think I think the interesting part about this is that up until this point when Andrew Hastie came out and when various other politicians have come out in his support and called a spade a shovel, the government was taking a fair degree of action about this. I mean, we've had the foreign interference laws, we've had the step up in aid to the Pacific to try and counter Chinese influence there, we've had various other bits and pieces that indicate the government is taking it seriously. But they have been very reluctant to actually 
put this stuff into the public domain. So I think it's interesting that starting with Hamilton's book and more recently with the Andrew Hasty piece and other people who've spoken on that, I think it's probably a good thing that actually it is being debated more publicly. The risk is, of course, still that it could be taken over by people who are xenophobic and racist in their outlook, but nonetheless, there's a real problem here and we have to talk about it. Thank you, Mike. No worries. Join Richard Tognetti and the ACO for a bold and intrepid 2022. Featuring a live national concert season, their acclaimed on-demand film series ACO Studio Casts and exciting programs from their new home in Sydney's Walsh Bay. Subscriptions now on sale at aco.com.au. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Elsewhere in the news, tensions between Australia and the Pacific continue to escalate as the Prime Minister of Tuvalu threatens to withdraw from Australia's seasonal worker program. Anile Sopawanga said he would have no hesitation in pulling back from the program following comments from Nationals leader Michael McCormack, who said he was annoyed by the way the Pacific criticised Australia's inaction on climate change because, quote, many of their workers come here and pick our fruit. And advertisers have begun a boycott of Alan Jones's show on 2GB after violent comments directed at New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Anytime Fitness and mattress company Koala have withdrawn their advertising expenditure, joining Snooze and ME Bank. Jones apologised for his comments last week and was cautioned by the network's owners. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Kolas. See you Wednesday. <laughs> 